0: Father, it's right that we come before You and ask for Your help as we seek to learn from Your Word. Uh, Help us, O God, to understand ourselves and to understand You. Uh, Remind us this very morning as we look at this passage that no matter how we come this morning, um, tired and weary Despairing, depressed, excited, anxious, or bitter and angry. Father, at the end of it all, we're all the same. We are all far more broken than we could ever imagine. And so, together, we need the hope of the good news that's in Jesus. That because of his person and work, though we're far more broken than we could ever imagine, we are also far more loved and secure and accepted and approved of than we could have ever dared dream possible. Father, take us to this good news this morning and change us by it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, to really think through the implications of the Christmas story at this time of the year, of year I think can be actually a, a challenge to us, and a big part of the challenge uh, Dave Wunrow, when he was leading uh, the Old Testament reading, he mentioned this. Um, We get so familiar with this story that sometimes it's hard to hear it uh, with fresh perspective. Um, Here's what I mean about the problem of familiarity. Uh, Probably 90 to 95% of the time when I leave my house in the morning, I turn right out of my driveway, and, and I'm so used to turning right that I'm almost on autopilot in the mornings. It, it's a little bit frightening uh, the way I'm not thinking when I'm driving the first thing in the morning, and my instincts just take over and I do what's familiar. And it's probably happened to some of you before, but every once in a while, I'll have an errand uh, or, or an appointment that I have to get to in the morning that requires me to turn left out of my driveway. But I don't turn left. My habits, you know, take over. I'm a creature of habit. My instincts take over, and I do what's familiar. And I turn right, and I get about halfway down my block, and then I have to turn around and drive right back by my house. Um, and, and that happens. I have to make that U-turn. And my point is that sometimes things can become so familiar to us that we're hardly thinking through what we're doing. Um, and, and that same kind of thing happens to us at Christmas time. I mean, there's shopping to do, there are decorations to put up, maybe there's parties to attend, trees to put up, Christmas cards to make sure we get them in the mail, and then maybe we're even going to church and we're hearing the familiar stories that we've heard for a long, long time, we're singing familiar Christmas songs and carols, and it feels good to us. It feels, so, it feels comfortable, it's familiar, and our instincts take over. You know what we just sang together a moment ago? O come, O come, Emmanuel, we sang, and ransom captive Israel, free thine own from Satan's tyranny, from the depths of hell thy people save, disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. We sing those words, and we're so familiar with it that sometimes I wonder if we really know and are aware what we're actually celebrating and singing. And so what I'm saying is I don't want us this Christmas season to just go through the familiar motions um, and and do what's familiar and let our instincts take over. I really want us to make a U-turn and come back by this story, and really think out its implications, Um, and to realize that this story, as you think about its implications, it has the power to radically change you, to give you the freedom, the hope, the joy, the peace you've longed for so much in your life. So let's do that this morning. We're going to think through some implications of this story in Luke chapter 1. Here are the three things that are, are the three places I really want to spend time on in this passage. I, I want us to talk about the recipient of this announcement, Mary, and then I want us to talk about the announcement itself, and then finally I want us to talk about the response to the announcement. So the recipient, the announcement itself, and then finally the response to the announcement. So first, the recipient of the announcement. No surprises here. It's a poor young virgin woman named Mary from Nazareth. And I'll flesh this out for for us a little bit, but here's the implication that I want you to think through as we talk about Mary. God's grace, or God's favor, it's always moving away from power and privilege and towards the lowly. God was announcing the birth of His own Son, And the first recipient of that announcement in Luke was a young woman around 12 to 14 years old. Do you realize how subversive that is? Right, this was a patriarchal society where the testimony of a woman had zero credibility in this culture. But the announcement came to Mary first. I mean, it wasn't until after she was already pregnant with child, that her husband received any special word of it. God's favor moves towards the lowly, and Mary and Joseph themselves, they didn't belong to an elite, wealthy class in their culture. In chapter 2, they went to the temple and offered two young pigeons as a sacrifice, and that was the sacrifice prescribed for the poorest of the poor in this culture. God's grace is always moving towards the lowly. And the announcement came to a woman living in Nazareth, of all places, we're told. Jesus' disciple, Nathanael, uh, said this about Nazareth in John chapter 1. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Right? The announcement wasn't made in the city of the king, Jerusalem. It wasn't made in the glorious temple but in a small, hick, nothing town with a horrible reputation. God's grace and His favor, it always moves away from the centers of power and privilege and towards the lowest of the low. I love that Luke told us in this passage how Mary herself was shocked that she would be the recipient of this announcement. Right, Verse 29, Mary was Greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I mean, she was trying to discern it, trying to make sense of what was happening, trying to put the pieces together. Is this a dream? Is this really happening? Why me? I'm an unimportant nobody from nowhere. But that's exactly the point. Twice in this passage, the angel Gabriel told Mary that Mary was that she was favored. In verse 28 and 30, greetings, O favored one. You have found favor with God. The Greek word for favor is the word charis, which is what we normally translate in the English as grace. And it's upside down and it's backwards. God's favor, God's grace is always moving towards the lowest of the low, the undeserving. Uh, one of my favorite story, stories, some of you have heard it before, it, it comes from a preacher, uh, Tony Campolo, who was in a diner at 3 o'clock in the morning when a small group of prostitutes walked into the diner. And he overheard their conversation that evening or early that morning, and one of them said to the others, tomorrow is my 29th birthday. And upon saying that, she was just ridiculed by the others. You know, who cares? What do you want? Do you want us to throw you a birthday party or something? You're just a prostitute. That's all you are. And when they left, Campolo asked the cook how often these prostitutes came into the diner, and the cook told him, Every morning at 3 o'clock in the morning, they come in like clockwork. And so he asked the cook if the cook would make a cake and he would pay for it and he would come early with some decorations. And would the cook help him spread the word that tomorrow at 3 o'clock in the morning they would have a birthday party in this diner? And so the next day, um, Tony Campolo shows up and he's putting all the decorations up and he's getting it all set up. And slowly people started to show up. And when 3 o'clock came, the diner, he said, was just filled with prostitutes and a cook and a preacher, which sounds kind of like a joke. Uh, but over, she walked, this one, young woman walked into the diner and realized what was happening. She was just overcome with gratitude and shock, and she just broke down and wept. And no one knew what to do. And so in that awkward moment, moment Tony Campolo just said, well, let's pray. And he led this room full of prostitutes in a prayer for this young woman. And at the end of the party, the cook pulled him aside and said, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. You know, what kind of church do you belong to? And he said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties at three o'clock in the morning for prostitutes. What kind of church is that? It's the kind that understands that God's grace is always moving away from power and privilege and towards the lowly. Let me two, two implications real quick. One global and one personal. First, global. Do you want to know where the gospel is advancing and spreading most rapidly? All you really need to do is just get out a map, and I'll give you a little hint here. It is not among the wealthy the privileged, and the powerful nations. It's in the third world. right? It's in Latin America and South America and parts of Asia and Africa and places like Nicaragua, among, amongst the poorest of the poor and the hungry and the needy and the lowly and the forgotten. You know, I didn't even say this before. I, I bet half of you don't know where Nicaragua is. It's in Central America. It's not in South America. Right? We don't even know where those places are. They're, that's how forgotten they are, and that's where God is moving. Why should we give our money to places like that? Because we belong to a church and a God who moves towards the lowest of the low in grace. Second, uh, just a personal implication here, is I know that many of you believe this with your heads. It's familiar, and you know the language of grace, but many of you go through so much of life feeling like God is deeply ashamed of you, and disappointed in you, and that He tolerates you, and He's weary of your brokenness. You've got to work the head knowledge down into your heart by meditating on the implications of a God who moves towards the lowest of the low. Now, I once heard someone, and I, I never forgot it. There are only two organizations that you have to be bad in order to get in, the mafia and the church, right? It's a prerequisite for being a part of the church. You have to know you're bad. You have to know you're broken. You have to come and rest in God's grace through Jesus alone and nothing else. You're Christian or not, your sin is never bigger than God's grace. And that's good and joyful news for broken people like us, and it's got to be worked down into our hearts. The recipient of this announcement teaches us that God's favor always moves to the lowest of the low. Okay, second, let's talk about the announcement itself briefly. I mean, We know the announcement. This is another part of the story that's familiar to us. The announcement was that through Mary god's own son jesus would come into the world and and here's the implication the almighty the all-powerful transcendent god of the universe was going to make himself vulnerable for you and that's a staggering implication that we need to think through so let's talk about this announcement when you have time you should back up and read the story that comes just before this story in the first chapter of Luke. Um, it's a story of how the angel Gabriel also appeared to somebody else. He appeared to Zechariah and told Zechariah that his wife would give birth to John the Baptist. And it parallels Mary's story, and in doing so, it highlights the similarities and dissimilarities in these two stories. And so I'm going to point out just one now, and then we'll move on. Uh, I'll mention it again in, um, in our last point. But when Gabriel spoke to Zechariah about John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 15, he said, he, that is John, will be great in the sight of the Lord. But when Gabriel spoke to Mary, he said about Jesus in verse 32, very simply this, he will be great. Gabriel was saying, John the Baptist will come, and he will be great in God's sight. But Mary, the one born to you, will be greatness itself. Right? Not only will he be given David's throne, Gabriel talks about, but verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. We're not talking about an ordinary man here. Then at the end of verse 35, we read, the child to be born will be called holy. Literally, that part of the verse reads in the Greek, the holy will be born to you. In other words, this won't be just another holy person, Mary. There's been a lot of holy people throughout history. The one born to you will be holiness itself. What was Mary being told in this announcement? The one born to you will be greatness itself. The one born to you will be holiness itself. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One born to you will be called the Son of God. The announcement was that as C.S. Lewis once wrote, a cleft had opened in the pitiless walls of the world. And God Himself came down to His creation. Holiness itself, greatness itself, God Himself became vulnerable for you. A a number of you are familiar with the popular author and researcher Brene Brown. Maybe you've Read some books of hers, or you've seen her TED Talks. Um, But she describes somewhere the difference between sympathy and empathy. Um, And she describes it like this She pictures someone in a pit, someone hurting, someone in pain, someone suffering, and crying out in the midst of that pain from the bottom of the pit, saying, I'm stuck. My life is so dark and I'm overwhelmed. And sympathy, she says, Brene Brown says, pokes its head into the pit um, and uh, from a very safe distance says something like, yikes, it's pretty bad down there, huh? That's all sympathy does. But empathy, she says, is different. Empathy climbs into the dark pit to be with that person. And says, I know what that feels like. And you are not alone. You see the difference between those two? Brene Brown says this, empathy is the vulnerable choice. Because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. What was the announcement itself that we're talking about in this report? It was that God himself would climb down into the pit. That he would make the vulnerable choice. The God of the universe would become an embryo, a baby. You don't get more vulnerable than that. The Almighty, the all-powerful God, greatness and holiness itself would take on our flesh, and by doing so, He would become vulnerable, vulnerable to being mistreated, vulnerable to suffering, vulnerable to abuse, vulnerable to rejection, vulnerable to death, even death on a cross. Listen, no other religion even comes close to this. It's scandalous. God made himself subject to the miseries of this broken world. God himself was born to die. He was born to take on the curse due us. Brene Brown wrote that the human experience is one of hustling for our worthiness by constantly performing Perfecting, pleasing, and proving. And I love that word that she uses there, hustling. Because I think that's very true to our experience. That we're hustling, that we're striving, that we're fighting, that we're working, that we're relentlessly chasing. We're desperate to prove that we're worthy, that we're enough, that we're lovable. It's the implication of this announcement that can set you free from all the hustling in your life, all the performing and all the proving. Because what this is saying is it's saying this is how much you are loved. This is how much worth you have. The king of kings became vulnerable for you. He climbed down into the pit, not even just to be with you, but to even die for you. And when that gets worked into your heart, and not just your head, that sets you free to experience deep rest and freedom in Jesus. Okay, finally, let's last look at the response to this announcement. How did Mary respond, and how are we to respond? What are the implications for our response to this? First, Mary responded here with open, honest questions. Okay, again, this is striking when you read the accounts of Zechariah and Mary side by side because both Zechariah and Mary asked questions. Zechariah in verse 18 asked, How shall I know this? And Mary asked in verse 34, How will this be? Very, very similar questions. But read the story and you find out that Mary got the answer. And Zechariah got struck mute until his son was born. Um, I drove by a, a church sign. This will make sense in a second where I'm going. I drove by a Memphis church sign not too long ago that read, just, when in doubt, don't. Um, now, listen, we can't spend a ton of time here, but I want you to see just briefly how, how much more nuanced the Bible is when it comes to questions and doubts. Because the Bible is saying not all questions and not all doubts are the same. See, Zechariah's questioning, it was closed. He had already drawn his conclusions, in other words. He was a cynic. He was asking questions, but he, re- he wasn't really wanting answers. He had already decided this is impossible. But Mary, on the other hand... She was asking open, honest questions. She was wanting an answer. Of course, she didn't understand, just like Zechariah didn't understand. But she was open to being taught, and so she was answered. And a sign was given to her through her relative, Elizabeth, in verse 36, a sign that was given to assure her, verse 37, that nothing is impossible with God. I know I'm hardly doing this justice but everybody in this room has questions, right? In fact, you, you really do need to stay away from anyone or any church that claims to have every answer because something is wrong there. The point that I'm trying to make is what kind of questioner are you? right? Are you closed like Zechariah or are you open like Mary? Are you closed and trying to stay in control of everything like Zechariah? Or are you open and willing to lose control like Mary is? Because Mary responded with questions, but that's not all. She also responded with submission, right? With each of our four children, we have four children from 13 to 7, and with each of our four children, I can remember, my wife and I, uh, in the months leading up to that birth, going through the list of names for that child as we were thinking about it, and wanting to get it right. And I remember when we were in the hospital and that, that nurse came in with all the paperwork and you'd have to fill it out and finally you'd have to write down that name for the birth certificate. Um, and, you know, why do parents get the privilege Of naming their children. It's because parents have a natural authority over their child. But Mary didn't get to flip through a book with popular Jewish boy names, did she? Right? She didn't. She didn't get to talk it over with Joseph. No, she was told in verse 31 to call his name Jesus. Gabriel was telling her, Mary, You're not going to have authority over this child. This child will have authority over you. You don't call the shots for him. He calls the shots for you. Your life must be in submission to him. And Mary got it. I mean, with all her questions about how this will be since she's a virgin and all the questions that you might imagine her having, having unanswered about the future, she replied famously in verse 38, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I mean, that submission. What was Mary doing there, but taking her hands off of her life? I mean, she's saying, I'm going to, I'm letting go of trying to control my life. I see that my life is not my own, and I'm willing to submit everything to the King. One of my favorite songs is a a song that Johnny Cash and the band U2 did together, uh, and I listened to it this morning. I hadn't listened to it for a while, but there's a great line where Johnny Cash sings this. He sings, I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to read it. Um, I, I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit, and they say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. And I think that is spot-on true, that we long for the blessings of God's kingdom, but we don't want the king of the kingdom. We don't want to give up control in our lives. We want to be our own kings. We want to call our own shots. We want to be the ultimate authority of our lives. We want the kingdom but not the king. What our close cynical questions, you know, really are, and doubts, really are in the end is just a sophisticated way of staying in control of our lives. All right, ways to avoid taking our hands off of our life and submitting to the king. But here's the implication, and it comes in the form of a paradox, and it's all throughout the Gospels. Mary found her life when she lost her life in submission to the king. A poor, young, virgin woman living in the first century in a nothing-hick town But you all know her name, and you are familiar with her story. Right? She lost her life in submission to the king. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Literally, the Greek is a bondservant, a slave of the Lord. And all because she lost her life, she she became one of the greatest people in the history of the world. And that's amazing, But it's not near as amazing as a king who would come in utter vulnerability and lose his life for his servants. The Son of Man, Jesus said about himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm not an idiot. It's kind of sad that I have to say that, I guess. I'm not an idiot. Um, I know that it's a terrifying prospect to take your hands off of your life and submit to Jesus. But coming full circle right now, it's when you see God's grace that moves toward the lowly and the undeserving, and when you see the king who became vulnerable and lost his life for you, it's grace that sets your heart free to submit even with your questions because you know it, He only means you good. Listen, don't just go through the motions of this Christmas season. You need to take time and ponder and like Mary, try to discern the implications of the Christmas story because, because it has the power to change you, to set you free, to give you hope to give you joy, to give you the peace you've been hustling for all your life. But it's found in Jesus and through Him. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for this time of year, and we confess that the wonderful story of the incarnation, of Jesus taking on flesh, it has often become... So familiar to us that we're able to go through the motions without thinking out the implications the good news of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would allow us this morning to believe not just with our heads, but also with our hearts. That you mean us good. That you are a God of grace and that in submitting to You is our greatest freedom. Father, we pray that You would help us to see this for our sake and for the sake of Your name. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.